All right, welcome back. This is part two of First and Second Thessalonians. In our last session, we did a walkthrough through First Thessalonians, and tonight we're going to do a walkthrough through Second Thessalonians. I know we, in our introduction, we covered both First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. What I would like to do here is just to go back over a little bit of the reason Second Thessalonians was written. Second Thessalonians is a letter of further encouragement in the face of suffering. It seems here that the persecution that the Thessalonian church was going through has now intensified. And Paul is encouraging them in the midst of their suffering that God is on their side. And those who are being the persecutors will suffer the judgment that is coming to them. Also, what we see here and why 2 Thessalonians was written, other than the persecution had intensified, Paul spoke about the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. Well, here we see in 2 Thessalonians that a report was circulating that the day of the Lord had already arrived. And this led to much confusion in the church. Uh, And thus Paul addresses these matters and he lays out before them uh, some things that must come to pass first so that the Thessalonians would know that they have not missed out on the coming of the Lord. And then the third issue that is addressed here is the problem of the people that had been giving up their work. And that had escalated further as they were living off of other people and not working with their own hands. You see, this is alluded to in 1 Thessalonians, but in 2 Thessalonians, uh, it has become more of an issue. A couple of things that you'll notice, if you recall in our introduction, we said that 2 Thessalonians lacks the warmth of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul acknowledges his intimate relationship with the church in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, And here Paul is really passing the personal stuff and seems to be getting right down to the heart of the matters. You know, obviously he doesn't like it that the church had, uh, you know, been told that they had missed the day of the Lord. Uh, The problem of those not working had uh, increased even more. Um, So he's a bit miffed uh, over these things that are happening And so these accounts together uh, account for the non-personal affectionate tone of the letter that we are used to seeing uh, in Paul's letters, especially to a beloved church like the church at Thessalonica. So what we want to do right now is we want to jump into the text of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, as you see in your Bible, is not a very long book at all. It is three short chapters, but it is not without its very difficult moments of interpretation. And as we mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, especially with dealing in like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with the coming of the Lord, and we talked about, you know, where that fits in on the theological scale, uh, This is even intensified here. So our purpose is, again, just to read the text, let the text interpret itself, uh, put ourselves in the shoes of those here at the church at Thessalonica, and uh, we're not going to get bogged down into uh, the speculation and the details of these letters. So we want to begin in chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Uh, We see the salutation, uh, the thanksgiving, and the prayer. So chapter 1 is 12 verses long, and we have a salutation at the beginning. Of course, Paul in verse 1 mentions himself and Silas and Timothy. Uh, And again, a very short introduction in uh, the 
second part of verse number one and verse number two. And as we read these first 12 verses, we want to note several things. Um, We want to note how the thanksgiving affirms the Thessalonians in areas that need reinforcing. Secondly, as with 1 Thessalonians, uh, the greeting soon turns into a narrative. He does not have a very lengthy and a long greeting. And what we will find out here as we will look in the text is that the narrative that it turns into is about the coming judgment on those who are persecuting the church here at Thessalonica. And ends on a note of the church's own sure salvation in the face of the judgment against those who are opposing them. Reiterating that God is not allowing their situation to continue indefinitely, but will give relief to them as those who are persecuting them would see the full fate of condemnation because they oppose God. And then as we read here, we read a lot of rich biblical imagery or apocalyptic language. Uh, You know, whenever we're reading, especially prophetic scriptures like in Daniel uh, and in the book of Revelation and some of your major prophetic, you know, even in Matthew 24, uh, scripture oftentimes and the writers of scripture oftentimes use what is called apocalyptic language. And this is kind of exaggerated, over-the-top language to communicate calamities or judgment that is coming, uh, such as, you know, the stars falling, the sun not giving its light, you know, the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, God coming on the clouds to judge a nation. Uh, you know, we, we see these, you know, beasts rising up out of the sea. We see these pictures, and a lot of people say, well, do I take that literally or symbolically? Well, when we understand uh, apocalyptic language, and that was a form of writing, biblical and extra-biblical writing in those days, to communicate a message of judgment or a message uh, of harm and, or hurt that, that was coming or people would be facing a difficult time. And we see that language here, and it's kind of you know, over-the-top, exaggerated, uh, heavenly you know, language you know, about you know, the cosmos and uh, you know, we really see that played out in several places. So, you know, if you're reading this judgment type language and you're like, you know, are these real stars falling or is the sun really not going to give, you know, it's lighter or the heavens really being rolled up? Most of the time that is apocalyptic language and it's to show the severity and the importance of what you are reading there and to really grab the reader's attention. So we see a little bit of that here uh, as he talks about the false teachers. So let's just jump into these first 12 verses in chapter 1. If you notice in verse number 3, he thanks God for uh, the brothers and sisters that are there in Colossae. And he says that your faith is growing more and more. And that the love of uh, the love that you have for one another is increasing. So even in the midst of this persecution that the church is facing, their faith is growing. And when you oftentimes in Paul's letters, when you see people's faith grow, you see their love toward one another grow as well. Because we're told in Galatians that faith works by love. So when faith grows, love grows. When love grows, faith grows. We see these two, faith and love, working hand in hand. So he thanks God that their faith is growing more and more. uh, And for the love that they have for one another is continuing to increase. 
He goes on to say in verse number four, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and your faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So Paul uses the church at Thessalonica as kind of like a model church. As he talks to other churches that are facing persecution, he goes back and says, hey, look here at the church at Thessalonica. And he boasts about them. He boasts about their perseverance through these difficult times. He boasts about their faith in the midst of the persecutions and trials that they are enduring. Notice that their faith isn't keeping them from these persecutions and trials. Their faith is keeping them through the persecutions and the trials. And for that, Paul gives thanks and Paul boasts about their faith and their life. He says in verse number five, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, they would be counted worthy of the kingdom for which they are suffering. He says, you know, because you're going through this and because your faith is coming through and because your love is coming through, that is proof that God is on your side and that you will be counted worthy for the kingdom of God. Then in verse number six, he switches into what's, you know, what's going to be the end result of those that hate God and that are persecuting this church here at Thessalonica. So he begins affirming them, affirming the church, Now he shifts in verse number six. He says, God is just. He says, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Speaking of the Paul and the other apostles. It says, this is what happened when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire. So here we see this, you know, apocalyptic heavenly cosmic language. You know, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who know not God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You know, this is very similar language to what is used in the Old Testament when it talks about judgment coming upon certain peoples or nations, about they would you know, encounter everlasting destruction in some of these things. It says, on that day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And he says, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Uh, He goes on to say, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that God would make you worthy of your calling and by his power, he will bring fruition every, bring to fruition every, every desire for your goodness and every deed prompted by faith. So if you notice, you know, he's telling them, you know, God is there with you, you know, and God is, is on your side and God is going to be fighting for you. And these persecutors who seem to have the upper hand, well, their end is destruction. And, and when God appears, he's going to destroy them and they're going to experience everlasting destructions and, and, you know, be punished in, in blazing fire when, you know, at the coming of the Lord and all of this, you know, language. And then he goes back into affirming you know, the church. Uh, And that includes you, and that you will be vindicated and you will overcome these false teachers. So he's using this language to, you know, encourage the believers, to encourage them that they are on the winning side. Uh, And then we find in chapter 2 of the book of 2 Thessalonians, now when we go into chapter 2, this part and the uh, 
you know, the verses here is full of mystery and full of many interpretations that we find here. Uh, Paul begins this body of the letter by urging the Thessalonian believers not to be shaken by the erroneous teaching. Uh, even though he's not quite sure of the source of the teaching, the, the church has received erroneous teaching, saying in Paul's name that the day of the Lord had already come and that obviously the church had missed out on the blessing of it. So he begins in verse number two, or chapter two, verse number one, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. So again, here is that teaching that is allegedly from them. He says, and whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord had already come. So the people were thrown into confusion. They were unsettled. And Paul says, I do not want you to be unsettled about these matters. So as we read Paul's response, and Paul's response really goes down through verse number uh, 12, um, he reminds them, he first reminds them of his earlier instructions. See, Paul had already taught them about these matters. And now someone had come along and seemed to contradict what they had believed about these matters. So Paul immediately tells them to recall the teaching that they formerly had. You know, and a lot of that teaching that they had from Paul, we don't have from Paul. And I think that's why this portion of the letter is so uh, mysterious and why it's so confusing and why different people from the different views that we mentioned before, you know, interpret this in different ways. Some people interpret everything that's getting ready to be read in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, you know, as way into the future in the tribulation period with the Antichrist. Some people try to go back in history uh, and look at some of the emperors of the day uh, or, you know, somebody like uh, Emperor Nero, someone who was very wicked, very evil, that detested God, that wanted to be worshipped. So, you know, that's why some of the confusion happens in this chapter because some people are trying to pinpoint, well, is this somebody in the past? Because it certainly sounds when you read this that Paul was expecting these things to happen imminently, that the day of the Lord was going to be imminent for the church in the first century, uh, that the, what is withholding this man of lawlessness that we're going to talk about, that it was already holding him back even in, in that day. Uh, so that's why, you know, that's why this is very difficult uh, to read. But as we read this response, we note, first of all, as I just mentioned, that Paul reminds them of some things that they had learned. Notice he says uh, in verse number three, he says, don't let anyone deceive you, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, or another translation says, or a great falling away occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the first thing he's telling them here is that we know the day of the Lord has not come because these certain things have not happened yet. Uh, the great rebellion or falling away hasn't occurred, and the man of lawlessness hasn't even been revealed yet. And then he goes about to talk about this mysterious man of lawlessness. He says, first of all, that man is doomed to destruction, much like those who are persecuting the believers, as he talked about in chapter 1, who is doomed for destruction. And he kind of talks about it in the same way as later on, you know, he talks about, you know, Christ coming and destroying him with the, overthrowing him with the breath of his mouth. 
Uh, so, you know, it's very similar language to chapter 1 where, you know, when God is revealed and when Jesus is revealed from the heaven in blazing fire. So the fate of this man of lawlessness is the same as the fate of these who are persecuting the church at this time. So he says, don't be alarmed that the day of the Lord has already come because, number one, the rebellion must happen. The man of lawlessness must be revealed and goes on to say that he's doomed to destruction. He'll oppose and will exalt himself above all that is called God. He desires to be worshipped. Uh, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So that's a little bit of, Paul says, you know, these things must happen first. And then in verse number 5 of chapter 2, Paul says, Do you rem- or don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you of these things? So Paul's telling them to go back and remember, I've already taught you about these things. So don't be shaken in mind because I taught you these things must happen and they haven't happened. So don't be, you know, shaken and, and confused about what's happening. He goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed in his proper time. So there was something currently back then holding back this man of lawlessness from being revealed. And Paul says, you know, when his time has come, he will be revealed. And Paul says, I've already taught you of these things. So they knew what was holding back this man of lawlessness. You know, we don't have that specific thing revealed to us of what is holding him back or who is holding this man of lawlessness back. But they knew because they were taught. And Paul goes on to say in verse number 7, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. So this power of lawlessness was already working uh, in the day of the Thessalonians here in the first century. You know, and then he talks about, you know, that what is holding back will be taken out of the way and the man of lawlessness will be revealed and then he will suffer destruction. So you can see that this is a very confusing passage of Scripture. So if you don't totally get it or don't understand it, uh, that's okay. You know, I don't totally get it and understand it myself. Uh, but we do understand what Paul was trying to say to the church, and that's the most important, that we're understanding the message, that he's telling them to don't be easily alarmed or unsettled. Just go back to what you've been taught before, know that things must happen first, and know that you haven't missed out on the day of the Lord. So uh, the man of lawlessness here is obviously the central figure uh, along with this great rebellion and uh, the coming of Christ where he is you know, destroyed to the coming of Christ or overcome at the you know, coming of Christ. But Paul is reassuring them, and this is the bottom line. So if I've confused you with everything I've said before, this is the bottom line. Paul is reassuring them that they have not missed out on the day of the Lord and on the coming of Christ because these things you know, had not happened yet in the, future, or in the time of that uh, Second Thessalonians was written. So, you know, who did Paul have in mind here? Who is this man of lawlessness? Again, is this someone that we're looking for in our day? Is this someone that we're looking for in the future? Obviously, many Christians believe that. Uh, is this someone that has happened or that has come in the past? Well, certainly there has been, you know, you know man of lawlessness figures or antichrist figures, if you want to use that word, you know, all throughout uh, history as well. You know, Daniel talks about one who was coming, Antiochus Epiphanes. He desecrated the temple. Uh, The Roman general Pompey, he entered the Holy of Holies. The emperor Caligula wanted to set up a statue of himself in the temple. 
Uh, in the first century, some Christians uh, would have seen the Emperor Nero as a man of lawlessness type figure. And the fact is, every generation after this, including the first century and every generation after, you know, has speculated and pointed to, well, you know, is this figure, is, is Hitler this Antichrist, is Saddam Hussein this, this Antichrist, you know, and we've kind of gone through history even in our day trying to pinpoint who this person of lawlessness is. So one thing I always like to say is, you know, God has called us to uh, prophetic interpretation, but not prophetic speculation. Uh, that's why going through and naming names of you know, who might be in our day, uh, you know, is, is kind of pointless, really. Uh, so we just like to stick with, you know, what is Paul telling the believers here? And what are the believers in Thessalonica in the first century, what are they hearing? Obviously, they've already had some type of clue. They've already had some type of teaching on this. That, you know, they believe that something in their day was holding back this man of lawlessness and the, the work of lawlessness and the power of lawlessness was already working. But yet the end result is Jesus is going to overcome. And Jesus is going to win. And that's the message that we see here and that the church, the persecuted church, would be vindicated. That's what God is trying to convey through Holy Scriptures here. So, you know, that's just something to, you know, there's a lot of speculation here, but get the main point of what he's trying to say. You have not missed out, you know, on the day of the Lord or the coming of Christ. Go back to the teaching you previously had, and at the end of the day, God wins and you will be victorious and you will be vindicated as his people in his kingdom. As we continue on in chapter 2, we go through 13 through 17. 13 through 17, uh, Paul continues to encourage the Thessalonian believers. Um, he immediately sets them and those who have believed the truth and received the Spirit in contrast uh, to those who had not believed, those who were persecuting them and those who would follow this man of lawlessness. So he contrasts the true believers versus you know, these who would follow this man of lawlessness uh, that we find here. Uh, finally, he prays for their encouragement and their continued faithfulness to Christian life and Christian teaching. He, challenge, he challenges them in verse 15 to stand firm. He challenges them to hold fast to the teachings that have been passed on to them. And that's something Paul does. He grounds them into what they have been taught. He grounds them into the truth. In verse number 16 and 17, Paul says this, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. You know, I know you're suffering temporary persecution now, but God has promised us eternal encouragement and good hope. So he says, encourage your hearts, that He would encourage your hearts and He would strengthen you in every good deed. You know, so he begins this section by encouraging the church. He goes through, they've been persecuted. He goes through, I know people are trying to throw you in confusion by saying the day of the Lord's already happening, you've missed the coming of Christ. And he goes through this, you know, scenario of the man of lawlessness. But then he encourages them even more that Christ is going to overcome. You know, that, that you will be vindicated and you will overcome. So therefore, be encouraged. You know, and that's really the main point of this letter is to be encouraged. So now we come here to the chapter 3. And chapter 3 is, um, you know, he kind of begins here in verses 
1 through 5 as a request for prayer for Paul himself. He encourages them in chapter 3, verse 1, to pray for us that the message of the Lord would increase and spread rapidly and be honored in other places just as it was with them. Paul asked that the church would pray for him that he would be delivered from wicked and evil people. Uh, and he says that the Lord is faithful. So Paul encourages the church to pray for him as well. And in doing so, the Lord would direct and comfort their hearts in God's love and in Christ's presence. Then when we come to chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, this is about those who are idle and disruptive. So before reading this section, you may want to go back and reread 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Uh, in returning to this matter, Paul uses himself as an example. And he urges the disruptive and idle to work with their own hands so they would not be a burden upon anyone else. Next, he tells the church what they are to do, namely disassociate from those who refuse to obey, but always think of them as brothers and sisters and not as enemies. So, you know, again, here's one of those historic particulars that the church is dealing with here in their time and how Paul instructs them to do. So he says in verse number 6 of chapter 3, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching that you have received of us. He says, you yourselves know and ought to follow our example. Paul says, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. So they didn't live or mooch off of other people. And Paul doesn't expect the church to do that or those in the church to do that either. He says, on the contrary, we work night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So you see how Paul uses himself as an example. He says, we did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. He says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. So obviously they knew that there was this issue here in Thessalonica you know, with people in the church not working and living and mooching off of other people. And Paul says, we came here to set an example, to follow. We set an example to follow. He says in verse 11, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy or busy working, but they are busy bodies. He says, Such people we command and urge to settle down and earn the food that they eat. We command them to work. And again, we speculated before, you know, whether they just didn't want to work or whether they, you know, they didn't feel they need to work because they felt the coming of the Lord was imminent. Um, we're not sure why this happened, but we do know that this is what Paul was dealing with. So he tells these people to work with your hands and earn what you eat. And he says, as for you, brothers and sisters, those who are doing right, he says, never tire of doing what is good. He says, don't go out and you know, say, well, they're not, well, you know, well, they're not working and living off of other people, so I'm going to go and do the same thing. Paul says to those that are being faithful, he says, never tire of doing what is good. Even in the midst of those who are not doing what is good, even though it looks like that would be really easy to do, we encourage you to stay faithful and never tire of doing what is good. So again, in verse 14, he says, take special note of anyone who does not obey this instruction. He says, don't associate with them. 
you know, because they'll end up taking advantage of them. He says, don't associate with them that they may feel ashamed. But then he says, but yet don't regard them as an enemy. Don't throw them out of the church. You know, don't, don't claim that they are, are heathen or they're not saved or, you know, they're not a part of the church. He says, don't treat them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Give them the teaching that I am giving you. Then we find here in verses 16 through 18, after Paul clears up the matter here against those who are idle and disruptive, um, he signs off, he says here in verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace give himself you peace, or may he give you peace at all times, and in every way the Lord be with you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. So Paul didn't write every letter by his own hand. He said someone to write for him. But he says, I'm picking up my, my pen and I'm writing this own greeting with my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in my letters. You know, again, to, to show you know, how much he cares for them by writing this out himself. But also as a way of authority, I'm writing this myself. This is the distinguishing mark. This is how I write. So again, putting his authoritative stamp. Because again, remember in chapter 2, someone had come along in Paul's name saying that the day of the Lord had already come. So Paul's writing this closing, this greeting with his own hand. Uh, is how he writes to show his distinguishing mark, to put authenticity to it. And he ends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So we see here that this small letter contains a lot. Uh, it contains a lot of practical instruction about what they were dealing with as well, you know, in dealing with the idleness of people there. Uh, also encouragement, encouraging them in their persecution, you know, complimenting their faith and their love and their perseverance during this time, but also assuring them God's given you the victory. And those who are opposing you, well, God is just and he will deal with them, you know, just like he'll deal with this man of lawlessness. And, and, but yet you stay faithful. You stay grounded. You continue to do what you have been taught and what the disciples had shown in front of them uh, and lived out in front of them. And no doubt that they would continue to do that. So a small letter, 2 Thessalonians is, but so very important uh, to in the encouragement of the church. So we want to encourage you today. Thank you again for uh, watching this teaching. Uh, we pray you've taken the notes and you read over them. Uh, and I know, again, there's some confusing things in both of these letters. Uh, they're, they're confusing to me. They're confusing for so many other people. But again, let's read this, not, not to try to figure out maybe all the little details and put them in a time and a place, but get what Paul is saying overall and let his encouragement to them encourage your hearts as well. Thank you and God bless.